Nano Taggart here. Uh, I'm honored to be the host of Play On, the podcast of the Utah Shakespeare Festival. For our inaugural episode, uh, we're excited to present David Ivers, a co-artistic director here at the Utah Shakespeare Festival, and he's also the director of this year's production of Twelfth Night. Thank you so much for joining us, David. Uh, I know you're busy this time of year, rehearsal season and all, so yeah. we really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so happy to, to do this. Uh, I wonder if you can set the stage a little bit, tell a little bit of the David Ivers story. Maybe what initially lured you to the festival? What role, what what feature of uh, Utah oh, Shakespeare story. Festival? Well, you don't want the whole you, story? Like you, I was born in a you can, hovel. You can, you can start with the hovel if you no, want no. to. But uh, I started here... You know, I started here in 1992 as an intern in the acting company. I was lured here and drawn here by the very nature of the fact that it was employment as an, <laughs> act, as an actor. I made $1,800 for the whole summer, plus I got to, you know, an apartment shared with three other people paid for. So that was, that was heaven uh, and got to do the work and, and understudy the work. And uh, I, I, you know, it's been a, it's been a incredibly rewarding and challenging and humbling kind of journey ever since uh, the opportunity to live inside of so many of Shakespeare's plays as an actor an observer a director now a producer has afforded me a, an interesting kind of view you know mm -hmm. altitude of yeah. varying feet depending on what hat I'm wearing and um, I'm still amazed and humbled by his work and discovering stuff that relates as my life experience grows and kind of realize the breadth of his genius. That's very cool. Uh, I can't say that I've been around many people that are as passionate about their jobs as you are. It makes it makes me wonder, was wow, there... Oh, you tell that to the rest of the staff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was there kind of a keystone moment for you, maybe as a, as a young lad, where, where you knew your life kind of had to center around theater, or was it a gradual progression and it just it just worked out? No, I think, I think I kind of oddly always knew. You know, I was... First of all, I had extraordinarily supportive parents who were interested in the arts. I think that goes a long way, who created and cultivated a sense that the written word and the spoken word were very important in our life, and the connection to the human experience was important. You know, we were one of those families that I thought sound boring, but now I find incredibly enlightened, which was, you know, we sit down and have a meal together, and we talk, and that becomes part of the central place for learning. And uh, I'm I'm so grateful to my to my parents for that. I also have, I'm also first generation American. My father was French Canadian. My mother's English. And so, um, you know, I think that that there's a there was just a different perspective on on how I was expected to learn. Interestingly enough, I wasn't necessarily a very good student until I went to college. I can and I was studying. I, I studied what I wanted to study, and in college and grad school and everything else, I excelled because I was really centered on what I wanted to focus on. But I was an athlete all through undergrad. Oh. I, I mean, all through uh, through uh, high middle school, school high school, and even sort of into college. And I, I was deciding at one point if I was going to pursue that or not. And then uh, the theater seemed to kind of take hold. And, and they're, both, they're, they're both extraordinarily dramatic uh, career, kind of careers. And I think something at the center of, you know, um, exploring a condition that elicits something you know or being mm -hmm. engaged in a condition that elicits something can be applied to both 
the drama of sports and and the drama of the theater. theater. So do you feel like uh, in in pursuing this and staying true sort of this passion, you're kind of staying connected with with your roots, with your family in a way? Oh, I, I think so, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I I I also. You know, I think my parents were nervous, like all parents. It's like I want to go into the arts, you know, and um, but I think ultimately, uh, in any career, you have to kind of be the master of your own destiny. You have to yeah. be able to three three dimensionalize, so to speak, what your goals are, and it just becomes a a, a race of, you know, I'm I'm not going to stop until I achieve, and then when I do achieve, that's just like. A hurdle, literally, in in the great sprint, to get to the next hurdle, to achieve, getting over that, uh, because the work continues to deepen, because the human experience continues to deepen. So, I'm getting all heady here, but I really this is my, good. My passion for the job, my passion for what I do, comes because I be, I believe that there's a kind of uh, open universe theory about how cl- complex and deep the work becomes that and, and intrinsic value in, in doing it right 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 very cool uh you mentioned wearing lots of different hats <clears throat> which you've done over the years here coming back for a lot of years as an actor and then you know getting some directing experience and what's what's the transition been like to being kind of a full-time nine to five administrative person that also still has his hands in performing and directing in these sort of production aspects is, is it challenging or does it would well, it be difficult to do the nine to five without being able to scratch that, you know, production itch? There's nothing nine to five about it. I yeah. mean, that's that's the that's the answer. Which is, yeah. there, it, I may leave, I may do days that are nine to five. I may yeah. come into this mm-hmm. office days like I did nine thirty today, and I'm going to leave at three. Mm-hmm. But people don't see like they don't see with you, you know, your families. They don't see, you know, the texts that Brian and I share up till midnight, one in the morning about how are we mm-hmm. going to deal with this? Did you hear about, have you thought about, you know, I was on the phone nine o'clock last night dealing with, even though I was done with rehearsal at five, dealing with other things in the festival that, you know, we should be looking at for another time. So it's an ongoing thing that's integrated into your life like cereal, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the great whenever food. But I mean, you know, it, it, it uh, and so, You better be passionate about it, whether it's anger, passion, excitement, passion, frustration, passion, joy, passion, because it's all encompassing. And it should be because I don't know how you turn off being present to the human experience. And if what we're trying to do is illuminate the human experience, it seems like that might be a poor thing to compartmentalize in the job, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm trying, you know, the... The, the the harder balance I think is is you know putting the cell phone down the iPhone yeah when I'm with my kids and my wife you know and like the harder the harder part that's odd is like trying to make sure that the other priorities stay not only significant but as a priority the family priority and I struggle with that because it's hard in this business you make it in this business by not saying no you. I've had the pleasure of seeing you direct a little bit now over the past couple of years. But in watching you direct, you uh-huh. both listen to your performers for feedback and their ideas. But you, you're incredible at sort of sifting through these ideas and you know having everyone buy into one direction, into the same direction. Thank you. Yeah, I mean it. it that that is, um, it's a little bit of a different beast in some ways than the leadership model of the business side of the theater. Yeah, the administrative right? side. Yeah. yeah, the administrative side. You know, like if 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 someone doesn't make a decision, someone's not going to get paid. Or some, you know what I mean? Or, yeah. or, if, or, or we're not, we're not gonna, you know, the, 
the the dump trucks aren't going to arrive for us to load load in day and you know for the sets or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the 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 rehearsal room is sacred and it's my favorite place to be because it is a free exchange of ideas led towards the alpha idea regardless of the voice that owns it. Uh, anyone I anyone I've worked with in the relationship of actor director or actor designer will have heard me say that phrase. Um, I am interested in pursuing the best idea that suits the story and compels and propels the production, regardless of the voice that owns it in the room. I'm interested in that as a leadership too, in, in, you know, as an artistic yeah, yeah. as an artistic director. But sometimes the story won't allow that to happen, right? Because the best, yeah. Because the best idea might have been for us to do X, Y, and Z with $35 million. But something that's beyond our control, the state or whatever else has said, mm-hmm. no, you can't take that $35 million and build hot dog stands. Mm-hmm. It's been raised for, you know. So so the context of rehearsal is always, there's a, there's already, the vision's already there amongst the, quote, staff in the rehearsal room, which yeah. is to build this play. Providing that you've got all the right there's people no in the room. There's no interpretive value that we're not one day rehearsing Twelfth Night, and then I'm going to say, "Oh, let you know, scratch that. Let's 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 do King Lear today." <laughs> you know, everyone knows what the vision is and what what we're working towards. And and one of the greatest gifts about being a director is that, as opposed to being an actor, is that as a director, you're always immersed in the process. Yeah, you're not really you're working towards the product, but then you kind of have a process of letting go when the product is has reached its place for it to fly. Mm-hmm. And I love more than anything being in the process because of what you mentioned, the collaborative process, having really clear vision, articulating it, seeing where people are lining up with it, guiding them in a place mm-hmm. where they may not be serving it, but there's value in what they're doing, you know, and um, uh, yeah. This leads really nicely into a conversation about Twelfth Night, uh, which you're directing uh, this season. There's kind of a lot of buzz. I know I'm not the only person that's really anticipating this play oh boy could could you uh there is there's some excitement about this could you maybe give a little bit of an elevator pitch and and say why this production might stand out from other productions of 12th night or why it might stand out from other shakespeare festival productions here in cedar city no (laughs) i don't believe you um something about music maybe i don't i mean I don't yet know, honestly. I'm ve- it's very kind that there's buzz, but you know, um, buzz is like there's. I, I had to drive out to the dump this morning, and the buzz was, man, it smells out there. So you know, no, it's not always, you know, it's not always a good yeah. thing. I will say, um, I, I feel really the, that we, Brian and myself, have 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 conquered what I think is could be one of the hardest parts, which is we have an extraordinary staff of actors, designers, artists, directors, musicians working on these shows. Mm-hmm. And that's always a little bit of, okay, what's it going to be like? It usually takes three or four days rehearsals before we go, hey, we got a good one. You know, we got a good yeah, group. Yeah. We gotta, they're good people, warm people, generous, good sense of humor, and extraordinarily talented. So that's great. I, It's great to hear that there's buzz. What what I feel about the production of Twelfth Night that we're trying to do is, is first of all, like completely pull apart how – astonishingly brilliant the layers of his text are right Mm -hmm. that that one particular tiny little thing is a revelatory uh 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 kind of moment for or or metaphor for the whole you know i I, i'm i'm really into outer space right i'm i'm really into the solar system and and the cosmos and 
you know, I, I, I joked the other day about Shakespeare being like, like one of those kinds of people he wrote very quickly who was so in touch with the sort of larger picture of the universe yeah. that he couldn't help but make connections. That, that, that even in his stream of consciousness, he was making connections. That all of a sudden, he's writing a scene that is talking about Sir Toby and that he's drunk and he's a drowned man. Yeah. And then all this stuff comes in about, about drunk, being drunk is like drowning and boom, four, line later, four lines later, Viola enters. Yeah, yeah. You know, whose brothers drown, who almost drown. You know, just, just these connective things. And how that relates to the cosmos is I was joking about, yeah, it's like, you know, when, when you study uh, a galaxy, mm-hmm. you know, and that you find you know, you're walking along the beach and there is the exact sort of shape of the galaxy in a shell that you have found. And you go, this, this, this cannot be entirely be by accident, that yeah. we are mirroring every part of the known and the unknown. And I think Shakespeare is a kind of visual and three, was a three-dimensional relationship, a, a, a version of that in mm-hmm. terms of its exploration of his brain. I am really heady today. Forgive me. This is what happens when I get no, a good night's good. sleep. No, this is good. This is good. So what we are doing is attempting to find all that connectivity first, just all the things that elicit behavior, all the things that, 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 that would give an actor uh, little moments of clarity about the, the level of depth that the play is working on mm-hmm. so that we can get rid of that and have a romp and a good old time but also find the deeper connection because the comedy really won't work unless it's ba- pitted against something. Yeah. And what it's pitted against is a little bit of loss, a little bit of need for family, a little bit of gender identity, a little bit of how much courage does a mask give you? Just think back to Halloween, kids. Yeah. What do you say behind that Spider-Man mask that you don't say with it in front of you? You know, yeah, with, yeah. you know, with I mean, with it not in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, all of that has led me to a place of, wow, wouldn't it be great if we? Kind of dusted off this play a little bit. We still set it. We still set it in a in a in a period that hinted towards something ago, mm-hmm. you know. But that it has a, a bit of a fresh, more contemporary feel. And we still try to place it where it should be in front of the in the eastern coast of the Adriatic Sea, okay. where Illyria sort of was. And we do it all in a very expressionistic set that doesn't really imply anything, so that you have to kind of decide. That's very Shakespearean. Look at the Adams Theater. You know, yeah, it's like, absolutely. you know, it, it, it jumps time and place. And and then we lift out of this, his most musical script an importance of that soundscape. Yeah. And we put the soundscape in front of you in terms of, in the terms of a live band. Yeah. That's there, that Orsino sort of controls and Festi controls. And that, that you're able to see and hear in front of you as it's happening the, the manipulation that music and sound has cool. on the psyche. And so that's one component that I think is really exciting about this production, if it all works, which is that we have this really musical, really funny, really beautiful, really contemplative, really romantic, really funny, again, Shakespeare play that now on top of it has the immediacy of live music. So is most of the music performed by actors on stage then? It's not, no, there's a three-piece no. band that is assembled just for this production. Oh, very cool. Uh, that lives on stage. Upstairs, center stage, and we'll play all the incidental music. Oh, wow. We'll accompany Festi. We'll accompany Olivia. We'll accompany the whole ensemble who's singing. Uh, and so it's by no means a musical, but but it is honoring Shakespeare's intent in terms yeah. of the musicality of, of of the piece. And he's so brilliant because he's able to explore darkness in the form of loss, mourning, yep. loss of love, 
darkness in terms of absolute excess of yearning for love through language, he's able to express all that also in this play through song. Mm -hmm. And we're also able in this production now to add expressing it through the music that provides the world for that song. Cool. So and that's this, yeah, really this, exciting. For a comedy, I think Twelfth Night is as loaded with music, both in terms of verse and actual music as any comedy, I think, in the canon. Uh, more so. I think it's... It opens it's with Orsino with but these beautiful lines. Yeah. I mean, it, music and it, be the food of love, play on, yeah. Exactly. Do you think, do you think it's that music that has sort of um, kept Twelfth Night in sort of that upper tier of comedies in terms of popularity with, with Midsummer and Much Ado About Nothing? Or is it is all is it all these layers? Do you think an audience goes to this play and, and makes all these connections and is just blown away? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I do know that at its core for me, the two issues of identity mm -hmm. that are connected to the issue of family are at its core. And the examination of that with a happy ending, mostly, yeah. except for Festy. <laughs> it's got a happy ending and then it's got a little bit of I haven't found mine yet. You know, yeah. So it 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 has a it has such a healthy dose of unoffensive, unobtrusive realism, mm -hmm. mixed with a tiny bit of fairy tale, mixed with our hope that we project onto the play mm -hmm. about how things are going to turn out. Yeah, and you cannot buy that. Hollywood's been trying to buy it. Hollywood's been selling it for years. You yeah. know what I mean? We. These, this is one of those plays, like the great films, where you know exactly what's going to happen. You, mm -hmm. could, you could figure it out pretty quickly. Once Sebastian shows up, and Viola said earlier, I think my brother's dead, and once he shows up and he's wearing the same thing as his sister, you kind of know yeah. where we're going. And this is not particularly a great movie, but it's a great example. We know how Rocky is going to end. You know, yeah. we kind of know where it's going to go or what that he's going to triumph something, even if he loses. You know, what I mean, there's going to be some. And yet we pay our eight bucks or now 10 or 12 or whatever to watch the journey. Yeah. Regardless of the end. And I think it Twelfth Night's timeless in that way. And it sells tickets because of that. And it's Shakespeare in terms of language, structure, um, conflict, resolution basically at the height of his genius it also sells well because it's darn funny yeah it is funny not forget it, that. it's kind of like the original <laughs> uh bizarre love triangle to quote uh, an 80s pop song yeah exactly i mean in a way right yeah and you've got these amazing subplots with um sort of servant characters giving malvolio a hard time there's a lot totally. going on so. totally and if you look for those low those servant characters like marias or toby mm -hmm. fabian you know you watch what they do to Malvolio, and a lot of people watch it. And, you know, we just laugh and think, but actually... It's kind of sad. It, it's sad, but also, I'll tell you, when you really look at the play about who's talking to who and who's looking for what, those are the only three that, that sound like family. That actually are like... In wow. You know what I mean? Having I had thought of that, like yeah. Having a conversation, working together toward the same goal, whatever that goal is. Uh -huh. Have an intimacy based on yelling at each other. Have an intimacy. Everyone else, you know, is trying to find their way into being able to to, to do that. So so Shakespeare's genius, again, in that these sort of lowly characters... Are the ones that are, are collaborating. Are the ones that are actually connecting. That actually love each other. Even if they're rooking each other, you know what yeah. I mean? They're still sharing time space good bad nobody else is doing that everyone else is soliciting to do that mm -hmm. i'll come to you and tell you what i that i love you 
I'll return a message that I do. I need you to love me. You know, I won't love anyone, Malvolio, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dusty, I've done serving, you know, to some extent. I'm out of service. I'm, I'm the, I am the most dire fool. <laughs> I'm the most unacerbic fool, you know. Yeah, yeah. So everyone's reaching for an identity. And oddly, these low-life, lowly characters, the little people, as Malvolio says, mm -hmm. are actually living. So there is a little bit of a subversion of power and control in this play then. That, I think so. Do you think you have a, in some of the roles and, and as an actor and a director in recent years for you, there seems to be a lot of that going on. Uh, 12 Angry Men, this idea of justice and, and people. I only do plays with 12. Even Skip Pan. I mean, you've, you've got a, someone that's lowly and in the hierarchy kind of controlling an underdog I, I relate or, to the underdog do you find it does it just do the cards just land this way or are you attracted to the idea that the power isn't necessarily just hierarchical that things can get done and sort of the ultimate good the ultimate truth can be achieved outside of of this you know idea of hierarchy or power i don't know the answer to that i don't know if i'm that self-conscious about it usually i'm drawn to material i mean i was drawn to 12 angry man be, be that play because I felt it was an extraordinarily important time after an election. It was, you know, we were mm. choosing it after an election. You One know. with the Zimmerman case. Had, well, it, yeah, but that, we didn't know that was going to happen. Oh, wow. It was so timely. Yeah. But, but, um, but also, it's a well-made play, and it seemed like it, it held and holds issues um, that were reflective for me of, at the time we were looking at it, there was a lot going on in the government where we, 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 we celebrated being polarized. That the idea of 12 people in our government or in our government system, not a jury, but in, in our cabinets or, mm -hmm. our, or our Senate or our House or, or anywhere, the idea of 12 of them coming into a room and arriving at the same decision, we're so cynical about the possibility of that happening. Yeah, it's true. You know, And I just thought, wow, this is like, are you open to your mind being changed? How open are you? And the question I keep asking about Twelfth Night, which sounds morose, and it sounds like he's not doing a comedy. I am doing a comedy. Yeah. I mean, it's me. So I, the comedy comes from a certain place, and I don't talk about it a lot because I know how to get to that. Um, and I, that's not a cocky statement. It's just that, that well, I understand that. You and that's know? part of the value of comedy is because you can get at these big, yeah. touchy things without directly ruffling people's feathers, right? Yeah, right. Or directly. Or, or directly. But yeah. I keep asking about Twelfth Night is how, how willing are you, how willing is your character to take the leap and experience life in the middle of death? The play's cloaked in death at the top. Viola's in self-imposed mourning, and she imposes it on everybody in her household. Mm -hmm. And Viola lands on shore, and her brother's supposedly dead. Drowned, yeah. Olivia's lost her brother and her father in 12 months. And um, Orsino's in mourning, too, for his life. You know, yeah, and so, so, um, you know, I'm drawn to well-made plays. I'm drawn to, I'm, it's people think I'm always drawn to comedy or want to do comedy. That's that's not true. Um, I, it's it's untrue actually. I, I have a great appreciation for it, and my career just went that way as an actor, and I'm grateful for that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, I I am interested in the underdog, definitely. Yeah, definitely interested in the underdog. Um, and I think that comes from my uh, my uh, European parents, perhaps. Uh, and I think it comes from a healthy dose of cynicism, insecurity, met with a healthy dose of kind of knowing what I want. 
that those two sense. things battling each other all, all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, there's something about the underdog that I, I, I look at in terms of how it relates to hope. And hope, ultimately, and faith, mm. and the idea that we shouldn't always um, define, be so quick to define us, uh, people, situations, environments, mm -hmm. uh, contexts so quickly. It's convenient. And I hang on to that, and I try to be patient with myself in that because the thing, all the things I just mentioned mm -hmm. are things that I have to help guide my two beautiful boys into a place of understanding. Yeah. And so... And these are big ideas right now because everything is at our fingertips, right? With our cell phones and our totally iPads, everything's totally. everything's instant. We yeah. want we want to be able to pass judgment. Well, and I don't want to and I don't want to censor my children from anything. I want yeah. them to experience life, love, all the goodness, all the accolades they need, all the success they want, as much as I want them to experience um, things that are not good for them. Because I know that the things that aren't good for them will have to contextualize and 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 end up making one appreciate more the context of good, you know? And I think sheltering, which I'm not interested in, is, is uh, counterproductive. So what that means is somewhere between the space and the two, we have to have a conversation. One yeah. of the ways we have a conversation, at least in my world, is the theater. Is the theater. Thank you again for taking the time to do this. Uh, this is our inaugural podcast. Uh, you made it. You made it really easy on us, and, and we appreciate that. Oh, I'm honored, guys. Thanks for your time, and uh, we'll see you out there in the courtyard. Awesome. Take care, David. Bye. Thank you for listening to Play On with the Utah Shakespeare Festival. If you have a question you'd like asked to one of our guests, send it to us at podcast at bard dot org or on Twitter at Play On UT Shakes, the Thursday before the podcast airs. Our upcoming schedule includes Laura Gordon, director of Measure for Measure, on May 28th. Please send in your questions before May 22nd so we can get them ready to ask to her. And on June 4th, we've got Joseph Hanready, director and co-adapter of Sense and Sensibility. Please send in your questions for Joseph before May 29th. <laughs>